Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. From the Revolution to the War on Terror, Americans have defined our society with the words liberty and freedom. We have held up these ideals as core values in the midst of cultural uncertainty and political strife. But where did these words come from, and how have their meanings changed as America evolved from scattered English colonies to the dizzyingly diverse, multicolored mosaic of the 21st century? In his book, Liberty and Freedom, David Hackett Fisher shows how liberty and freedom originally meant two different things. Liberty implied separation and independence, while freedom carried the idea of attachment to a community of free people. Yet like the double strands of DNA, the two ideas became intertwined, and they have recombined in every generation to shape American culture in fundamental ways. In this archived lecture, Fisher discusses his 2004 book, and the ideas of liberty and freedom. Thank you very much, Peter, and all of you for this uh, welcome. It's, uh, I, my, uh, it's wonderful to be back again in, in Ohio. My, uh, my uh, daughter, one of my daughters, spent some time at Western Reserve Academy in Hudson, and, and uh, I much enjoyed visiting her and seeing this beautiful countryside around here. Maybe I should begin by saying, things being what they are, that I'm not here to ask for your vote. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I want to talk about some political things in another way. Uh, my, uh, all of my books begin as an inquiry. That's what history meant to Herodotus. When he put that word on his title page, it literally meant the inquiries of Herodotus. And my inquiries that led to this book began when I came up on a conversation I put in the Paul Revere volume, it was uh, a young historian named Bella Chamberlain in the year 1843, who uh, was collecting evidence on the, on, the, uh, on the American Revolution. And he went to interview um, a survivor, Captain Levi Preston, who was 91 years old, a very cantankerous Yankee, who fought at Lexington and Concord. And the historian began, he said, uh, Captain Preston, what made you go to the Concord fight? And, uh, the old soldier bristled at that question. He didn't like the idea that anybody had ever made him do anything. And so he rephrased the question and he said, you mean, what did I go for? And the historian still didn't understand. And he said, were you oppressed by the Stamp Act? And Captain Preston said, I never saw any stamps. I always understood that none were ever sold. The historian said, what about the tea tax? Captain Preston said, I never drank a drop of that stuff. The boys threw it all overboard. Uh, the historian said, well, I suppose you've been reading Harrington, Sidney, and Locke about the eternal principle of liberty. Captain Preston said, I never heard of those men. The only books we had were the Bible, the Catechism, lots of Psalms, the hymns, and the almanacs. The historian was about ready to despair. And he said, well, then what was the matter? And Captain Preston said, young man, what we meant in going for those redcoats was this. We'd always been free, and we always meant to be free, and they, didn't mean, they, they did not mean that we should. And that was his ex explanation of why he went to the Concord fight. And in history, every answer becomes another question. And my question was, what did he mean by free? Was it the same thing that people 
appear to mean today? Was it something different? How have those, how has that idea changed and stayed the same through time? And I think that's one of the central questions in American history as liberty and freedom are central values in our culture. So I went in search of an answer and most of the academic answers didn't help to get <coughs> to the bottom of what Captain Preston meant uh, because they usually refer, they, it's a sort of text and context method. It sets American ideas in the context of books that Captain Preston never read, of periods in which he never lived, uh, of people he never knew. And so I thought, how could we find something that was more immediate to him? And I thought, first of all, to start with the language, the words that he used, and to look into the, into the history of those words. I love to use these dictionaries on historical principles, the Oxford English Dictionary. There's something like the Oxford English Dictionary for German and French. The Brothers Grimm, before they did their fairy tales, did a wonderful dictionary on historical principles. And I looked up the words that Captain Preston used. Big, the, the big words here of liberty and freedom in particular. And what I found took me very much by surprise and also deepened the mystery. The first thing I found was more or less what I expected. It was the origin of uh, libertas and the various Greek words uh, that usually eleutheria, uh, which meant the condition of being independent, separate, um, uh, in that way, unlike a slave. And words like eleuthero in scientific language today, uh, eleutherodactylic means uh, separate fingers and toes. And then I looked up freedom, and that was a discovery that took me very much by surprise. I found that the word freedom has the same root as the word friend. It comes from an East European, uh, comes from a, an Indo-European word that means beloved, beloved. And that seemed a very curious fact to me. And then suddenly it dawned on me that freedom meant being attached to other free people uh, by ties of kinship or affection. And in that attachment to have a condition unlike a slave. So liberty and freedom both meant the same thing in being unlike a slave, but they meant opposite things in terms of separation or attachment. And we English speakers are, I believe, the only people in the world who get to have both liberty and freedom in our language. Uh, most uh, Western languages have words of this sort, but usually it's either <coughs> liberty or freedom. But we have them both, and we've inherited uh, these, this, this tension that you can find in the language, and it gets deeper in that, and then I went into great detail, which I won't do here today in the first part of the book, about the other words that were associated with this. That is, freedom was associated with other words common in the same languages of Northern Europe, words like rights. Uh, but rights did not appear in Latin or Greek. There are other words that are like eos or words that are like a privilegium. That is to say, uh, people who had liberty didn't have rights. They had privileges that were granted by law. And there was a big difference that way, and it multiplied. 
beyond that. Two separate linguistic traditions that merge, but come together in English, I should say, mix without merging. And, and all of that, um, even as I then went on, uh, the, the oldest word I found for something like liberty and freedom comes from Iraq, interesting enough. <laughs> Uh, it was found in the, in the ruins of Lagash. In cuneiform uh, uh, inscriptions, and there was a word that was, it was, it's, I don't, my Sumerian pronunciation is not up to this, but it was ama amargi is the way that it's often transliterated. I've been consulting the Sumerian specialists. And uh, in the Sumerian dictionaries, ama amargi was the word that described the condition of servants and slaves who had been freed and the literal meaning of that was going home to mother, going home to mother. And it's interesting today that there are motorcycle gangs who now put these cuneiform inscriptions on their biceps uh, as, a, as, a, as a kind of uh, a, a talisman of liberty. And I don't think they know it means going home to mother. Uh, and, uh, but all this, these different origins uh, added to the puzzle of what uh, this man, um, uh, Captain Preston, meant by liberty and freedom. And then suddenly it dawned on me that there was another way. These were uh, literate, this was a literate army, one of the first literate armies. And so they used words a lot, but they also used symbols. And when they went to Lexington and Concord, uh, they, their symbols were on their hunting shirts that they wore, embroidered. Uh, they were on their flags. Uh, they were especially on their powder horns. I apologize for the resolution in this in this uh, slide will get a little bit, a little bit better. This was the um, the uh, powder horn of a of a, a New England uh, militiaman named James Pike. It's in the Chicago Historical Society, and you'll have to take my word for it because the it's, the, the, the slide is 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 not up to this. But what it shows is an image of the of the first shot at Lexington, Green. and on the left. It shows regulars, it's underneath, these are the British soldiers called regulars, and they are called aggressors. And then on the right are the, the provincials who are defending, with those words underneath. And what this is meant to show is that the regulars fired the first shot, and you can actually see the first shot here, is, uh, let me see if I can make this thing, that, there is the first shot. Out of that's a musket right there. Uh, aimed at the at, at the, uh, the, the, the the New Englanders, and in the center is a is a symbol of liberty, a, a tree, and underneath is that inscription right there, which says "Liberty Tree." I thought that was a very odd symbol. Why did he? It's clear what he meant to say by all of this in every respect but one. Why did he think of liberty as a tree? That's not an image that comes first to modern. Minds and uh, I began to look a little farther and let's see if I can, if my manual dexterity is up to this. Um, uh, and uh, all over New England, this was the original Liberty Tree. Uh, it was an elm tree that stood in Boston, 1765, <coughs> on what is now Washington Street and Essex Street. And in 1765, after the Stamp Act had been proclaimed, uh, an effigy was was uh, hanged in this uh, tree. Uh, an effigy of the man who, the Bostonian who agreed to be uh, the first stamp collector. And then after, uh, after the effigy went up, a huge crowd gathered around the, the tree. 
And uh, it was adopted as a, as a, a meeting place. The, the area under the tree was called Liberty Hall. Uh, and uh, the men who gathered there took the name of the Sons of Liberty. Uh, and this tree had deep roots in New England in more ways than one. That tree had been planted by the people who founded Boston. It was an English elm tree. And it had been, it had been planted uh, before 1644. And all the way through, uh, Bostonians had taken a tree as this, their symbol. And then in the Revolution, it began to grow much more elaborate. And these are, I, again, apologies for the slide, but th this is the flag of the Newburyport militia. And there is, again, that liberty tree. And then around it are these hands reaching in toward the liberty tree and all bound together by a chain connected as one. Uh, and th this is the 13th Massachusetts Regiment. And it's their flag. And here you'll see two soldiers in their continentals. And they're both wounded, bleeding. And on the right are a group of children, New England children. And in the center is a liberty tree. And the inscription says, for posterity, we bleed. And then we can see other signs here in which there are, there, this was another New England flag which they borrowed for a very short period. Uh, the English uh, Union of Jack, this was the Union of Scotland and, uh, and, and, and England. Liberty and Union, and that word Union was often uh, combined. And then we see other inscriptions in which there are phrases that speak of the liberty of Boston, the liberty of New England, the liberty of America as a collective idea. They also had an idea of individual rights that were very strong here, but they had that, that, that special sense of a collective idea of, of liberty, which um, I think was peculiarly rooted in New England as these liberty trees multiplied very rapidly in, in New England, more than other places. They were borrowed elsewhere, but they were mostly here. And then we moved to New York, and here we find another symbol. The New Yorkers in 1766 invented a symbol uh, which I think was inspired by New England, but New Yorkers don't like to imitate New Englanders in any way. So they invented another thing, which was a huge mast. The men who built this called themselves the Sons of Neptune. And they were seamen, uh, merchants, um, ships chandlers, men who worked in the maritime trades. They were very mixed. Uh, these are two of these uh, men. One is John Lamb, and the other is uh, Alexander McDougall. Uh, and they were of many different backgrounds. Some of these men who led that group were the sons of transported uh, English convicts. Uh, others uh, were, uh, had moved uh, from, New, from Scotland, uh, from, uh, from, uh, from New England itself. And so they were very mixed. They had nothing like that sense of Ethnic, ethnic unity that was so strong in, in New England. And they erected um, this tall mast. You can see the scale of it from the men who are next to it. And then they, at the top, they put um, a sort of weather vane uh, that said liberty. And this was different from a liberty tree. It was not organic. It was, a, it was a mechanical, it was an artifact of human creation. It was a class symbol. It, it arose from these maritime trades who were very conscious of their separation from others uh, in New York. And it had a very different texture from that liberty tree in New England. And then in Pennsylvania, 1751, the Quakers create another symbol. They didn't call it the Liberty Bell. That's a name that would appear in the abolitionist movement. 
But this was invented to mark the 50th anniversary of, of William Penn's uh, Charter of Liberties, which had been given in 1701. And the Quakers, who controlled the Pennsylvania Assembly in 1751, adopted a text which they inscribed on the crown of the belts. It's still there. And it's taken from Leviticus. And it's, it, 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 it reads, Proclaim liberty throughout the world unto all the inhabitants thereof. And this comes from a group, uh, a, a denomination, a Christian denomination, that believed in that inner light within all humanity. And they had a sense of reciprocal liberty that extended to everybody, not just to the people of a New England town or to the people of a class in, 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 in New York, but to uh, but a universal idea. And they, they honored that, that way of thinking by being one of the few people in early America who extended to others the rights that they claimed for themselves. And the Liberty Bell, which was to ring out throughout the land, I think was a perfect symbol of that. And then, the, the, in 1776, these three gentlemen of Virginia at the bottom uh, were given the task of creating a, a seal for the state of Virginia. Uh, and this is George Wythe, and it's Richard Henry Lee, and it's George Mason. And on the front, they have that figure of a warrior that says, it's still the motto of the state of Virginia, six semper tyrannis, thus always for tyrants, and underneath is a fallen king with his crown tumbling off. And uh, then on the back, which I think is the most interesting part, you'll see the date Roman numerals below for, uh, for uh, 1776. And then it says, uh, God has given us this otia, otia, which means leisure, leisure, or independence, but mostly leisure. And they didn't have, um, they, there was so much otium in Virginia that there wasn't a, an engraver in the colony who could actually make this into a seal, so they had to send it to Philadelphia. Uh, where Thomas Jefferson uh, was uh, otherwise employed in July 1776. Uh, and he took one look at this and he wrote back and he said, it looks fine on the front. He said, but what in God's name is Otia? He said, most of us are working very hard for this. Uh, and uh, they, but they insisted, the legislature adopted this and they insisted, and what they appear to have meant by this is that liberty referred to uh, it was a hierarchical idea. It was an idea of rank or privilege. That's what Edmund Burke said. He said of, of the Virginians in particular. He said, liberty is a kind of rank to them. And these were slaveholders who believed deeply in liberty, but they also uh, believed, they also accepted, many of them, slavery. And for them, some people were born to many liberties, others to not so many or few or even none. Uh, and so this privileged class, which had otium, also had liberty. And those figures on the on uh, those figures are meant uh, to represent the harvest. They're meant to represent abundance, and they're also the figure of the goddess of liberty on the back, all in one. So here now we've got four different ideas of liberty, and we can move on. South Carolina, 1776, a British fleet attacks, and they find. Set, they find forts ringing uh, Charleston Harbor, uh, flying flags, which are were actually slightly darker blue, something's happened to the color here, it was an indigo blue with a crescent. 
and the motto, liberty. And one question I, I scratched my head over, why a crescent in South Carolina, which then begins to um, appear over and over again in South Carolina. It becomes a symbol uh, that many people um, adopted. It was invented uh, for this occasion by this man on the left. We know who invented all of these symbols, and they told us they tell us why. Uh, this is Colonel William Moultrie, as they pronounce it in South Carolina, and uh, he uh, has a chapter in his uh, memoir about the invention of, the, of this flag. And he uh, 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 refers to the indigo blue, uh, the crop that was being raised in South Carolina. And then he describes the crescent. He said, I picked the crescent. He doesn't tell us why he picked the crescent, but he describes it in heraldic terms. So I went into heraldry looking for crescents. And here's what I found. This is actually the coat of arms of the Lee family in Virginia. And I discovered that if you look up here in the Oh, sorry, I've got to go back again. Um, I, I was told how to do this, and uh, let's see if I can. Oh, now we're going too much. Uh, let's see. Um, um, I'm, I'll get this. Don't help me. Uh, I, I apologize. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. I think this should. I'll, have to, I'll learn this by the time I'm done. Yeah, I think I do. I want to go back again. This is the Lee coat of arms, and here, if you look carefully in the corner, there is a crescent. And I discovered that the crescent is the emblem of the younger son who inherits the coat of arms, but not the land. And so that's the symbol. And William Moultrie was the younger son of an arms-bearing family in Scotland. And these were people who'd been denied access to the land that had been their hope and dream in, in, in the, their mother country, came to uh, America. And for them, liberty was a kind of opportunity to achieve that status uh, that they had, uh, that they hoped to. It was also a, a, an, a, an expression, this was a, an increscent that they put on their, their, their flags. There are many different forms of crescents. And an increscent is a symbol of prosperity and gain. And most of these symbols catch on because they mean many things at once. Uh, and so we have yet another meaning. And then we go, oh, now I'm going to be back again. Let me get off of that. Uh, there we go. I think I'm getting this. Uh, then we get another symbol, the back country. It's descended from this. This was a serpent that began to be used in America in the mid-18th century, first as a symbol of unity. And this was Benjamin Franklin's original uh, cartoon that he published in his newspaper during the French and Indian War. Uh, and it, he, he takes it from a French emblem book, which had the same motto in French, join or die, European serpent. And then, in 1775, we begin to see other uh, symbols. These are not European serpents, uh, but American rattlesnakes. The European serpent had looked not very healthy 
and this this is a this is a formidable um, uh, a, a rattlesnake who is coiled as if to strike, and underneath a motto is added, uh, which makes the main point: "Don't tread on me, me." First person singular. This is about me. It's not about the liberty of New England or the liberty of America. Uh, and this simultaneously appeared in 1775. Up on the left is a militia flag from, from Western Pennsylvania, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, uh, in 1775. And uh, in the center is, the, is the, the flag of the Culpeper Minutemen, same period, almost the same time, Western Virginia. On the right, another Pennsylvania uh, regiment. Below uh, South Carolina uh, 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 regiments. Uh, and here, um, a piece of Georgia paper money. Uh, with another one of these rattlesnakes coiled as if destroyed, but instead of saying "Don't tread on me," it says "Nemo me cune lacessit," which is the motto of the, of Scotland. And what it means is that nobody insults me with impunity, or, in other words, "Don't tread on me." And uh, this another figure in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, was uh, a hornet. Uh, and um, with the same idea, a hornet only striking if attacked, according to the, the legend, this is still the symbol of, you'll see this on police cars in Charlotte to this day, these symbols uh, persist. And here, these, all these um, images, except for one in the center, in the spread, came from a region in America in the southern backcountry, southern highlands, that ran from Pennsylvania down to Georgia, and was uh, it was uh, populated not entirely, but by a plurality in many areas of immigrants who had moved in the period from about 1715 to 1775 from the borderlands of North Britain. They were Scots Irish, or they were from the north of England, or they were from the lowlands of Scotland, and they came from a place which had been convulsed in violence for a thousand years with two kings, not one government, but two that both claimed to rule them and brought them nothing but misery. And they came to be free of government, to be free of that sort of oppression. Uh, and they adopted this idea of a much more uh, individuated, atomistic idea of don't tread on me. And these all, uh, this is a, 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 a um, uh, a map of dialects, but it's also a map of migration. And it shows um, uh, four major regions that are somewhat blurred here. There is that New England area that's spread out across the country. Uh, then there's another migration that's spread out of the Delaware Valley. This is, these are four different American accents today uh, that were done by a group of linguists at the University of Michigan, one of the biggest research projects you've ever had. This is actually a brown uh, tint here along the the, the coast of South Carolina, which is, and, and, and Virginia, into Virginia. This is the tidewater. And then the green is a larger area of the Southern Highlands. And those are the areas that produce the Liberty Tree, the Liberty Bell. Liberty Bells began to multiply in the Delaware Valley. It produced the, these goddesses of liberty in the crescents in the low country, and it produced the rattlesnakes in the back country. If you look closely, you'll see a sort of blue stain in the neighborhood of New York. Uh, and that's a fifth region, very small. It's a, it's a cultural hearth without a hinterland, never produced a large uh, population in the interior. But it also contains today 10% of the American population. And that's where the Liberty Poles uh, were 
created, and then lots of others. This was um, a German symbol of liberty, uh, not regional, but ethnic. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Germans in America by 1775. And this is a, a, a biblical passage from the book of Micah. And it says that every man should be, uh, should be uh, secure under his own vine, or with his own vine and fig tree, without fear. Another idea of liberty is living apart, without that militancy of the Scots-Irish uh, that we pick up in the Germans. These are African-American symbols, not a lot of them. Uh, this was a, 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 a group of free uh, African-Americans uh, who adopted this ensign for their, um, for, their, uh, for their military unit, and they all wore these badges, and they called themselves the Bucks of America. Uh, and there was nothing African about this, but something very American, much more than the other symbols uh, which were rooted in those regional cultures. And the, the back, you can just barely make out there, it's a red flag with black letters. This was the flag of a slave insurrection against the Whigs in Virginia. And what it did was to take Patrick Henry's motto and reverse it. So it says, death or liberty. There was a very dark sense of that. Uh, uh, and here were people who clearly at the top, this was a clear idea of what liberty was. It was emancipation. Uh, and at the bottom was this sense of becoming, uh, 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 gaining some sort of independence and belonging in America. Uh, the, in the idea of these bucks of America taking that symbol. Then I found other symbols um, amongst the artisans of the, of, the, of, the, of the seaport cities. And these were what were called finial busts uh, that went on top of high boys or of library, of uh, these secretaries. And in the center would be a portrait. And we've got about eight of these, of these uh, pieces of furniture. Uh, with uh, the various figures, and they were picked as symbols of liberty or freedom. And the one uh, at the uh, top uh, is, uh, is, was the most common figure, who was John Locke. Five of those eight were John Locke. And down below was John Milton, not the Milton of Paradise Lost, but the Milton of uh, uh, arguing for liberty of, of, of expression. And the, one, the, the eighth was on the piece you see, which is Madame de Pompadour. And Madame de Pompadour was a, a, a taken to be a very a, a figure striving for her own independence. So all of these uh, pick up different things. But it's interesting that these are the only symbols that I find that make contact with the great treatises of liberty and freedom on which much of the academic literature is based. That is, we, here's where we meet Locke. Here's where we meet uh, the, the political theorists. We don't see them in the other symbols. And then there were the Tories. And they also thought that they were defending liberty. They believed that, that they were fighting for an empire of liberty. And so this is a fireback. And it is a, a figure of George III. And on the right, it says, Bill of Rights, Magna Carta. That is to say, this is an idea of liberty as, as liberty under law which is from the sovereign of the empire, which was king in parliament, hyphen, hyphen, hyphen. King in parliament, a, a loyalist idea of liberty and freedom. And then the question was, all of these people fighting for what they call the cause, but in 1776 the question was, how could they find a common symbol of their cause when they had such different visions 
of liberty and freedom. I believe that each of these symbols was the shorthand for a vision, the vision of the back country and so forth. And they were not really different, but opposed. And when these, these when men met from these different cultures, the results were explosive. I tell the story in my book on George Washington uh, in the, the Continental Army's camp in 1775 when the backcountry riflemen met the New England militia. And the result was an insurrection that was larger than the battles of Lexington and Concord. Uh, and Washington's first job was to make peace among these different groups of, 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 of free people. And so the question was, they needed a symbol particularly when they went to New York and they faced the largest army that Britain fielded in the American Revolution. They did something that would identify them on the battlefield. And General Charles Lee suggested, racked his brains, and the only thing he could come up with was to get a, that every uh, regiment should have a flag of a distinctive color with the word liberty in very large letters. And this would be the common denominator of the American cause. And this was actually done, and eight of these liberty flags were found, were captured on the battlefield at, uh, at Long Island. Some of them are made from dress fabric, some of them from curtains, tablecloths, always with that word liberty. This is one of the Schenectady Historical Society. Uh, and, and then the next thing that Americans tried to do was to create a symbol of their pluralism, of their diversity. And this was, at the top, uh, a, paint, a portrait of Commodore Isaac Hopkins, who was the first commander of the U.S., the ranking officer in the U.S. Navy. And you'll see at the back, on the right, uh, is a flag for the <coughs> Massachusetts Navy, which is flying the Liberty Tree flag. And on the left is a, uh, is a, uh, a ship of the South Carolina Navy, which is flying uh, a rattlesnake flag. And this was a very doubtful symbol of unity, particularly as the artist had arranged the ship so they appeared to be firing into one another. Uh, and uh, uh, this, this was an approach that did not catch on. Then there was this version, which was adopted by the Continental Congress for a very short period of time, uh, in which we get a symbol of, uh, a, this is meant to be a liberty pole uh, with a uh, liberty cap, the pileus, this is the wand and pileus, the, the symbol in Rome was the, the, the goddess of liberty reaching out to a slave, uh, uh, touching the slave with a wand, uh, and then giving the slave the pileus, the soft stocking cap, that would become the liberty cap of the French Revolution as a symbol of emancipation. And there it is. And we see this liberty pole being held by 13 hands. Uh, and this is the inscription around. You see Magna Carta here at the bottom. Uh, and then it was given to an engraver uh, to represent it, and the result is this very unusual-looking Liberty pole. Sometimes I wonder if that engraver was a secret Tory. And we also see in the Continental Congress 13 grasping, greedy hands reaching in, which was a symbol that also didn't seem to didn't catch on. Uh, and so Americans began to look for other symbols. And one thing they found was the Indian. And the Indian began to be used, actually it's done before the revolution by other people. This is a, this is a British piece of China in the Victoria Albert Museum. And this is William Pitt reaching down in a very condescending way to America, who appears as an Indian child. Uh, and then as the revolution uh, developed, uh, this is a, I wonder if this is quite in focus. Do we have a, uh, 
Can we adjust the program? This is, uh, America now has become um, an Indian maiden princess. We can't focus on it. That's, that's about it. And I, you'll see uh, at, the, at the right, uh, she says, liberty, liberty, um, forever, uh, uh, mother, while I exist. And on the left, it says, I'll uh, uh, teach you uh, to, um, uh, I'll, I'll teach you, I'll train you to obedience, you, you rebellious slut, uh, to that effect. And then here at the bottom is a scene of the reconciliation of Britannia and America. And notice how the Indian is becoming a symbol of liberty. Here's the wand and the pilius again. Uh, and uh, and um, they are making up here, and Britannia says, be a good girl and give me a bus. Uh, and, um, and, and America says, uh, darling mama, say no more about it. Uh, and we see this idea of liberty now attaching to a place, which is America, India, the Indian being a symbol of, of America. And gradually, the, uh, as the war went on, uh, the Indian becomes a male. And the male becomes a symbol of independence and power and even aggression. And look at this 18th century. It's called the General Piss or Peace, and here is America. Uh, as an Indian, um, as a symbol of, of, of America, amongst the other powers of Europe, um, not distinguished for altruistic actions here. Uh, other people thought, um, that they, I should say that the Indian did catch on as a symbol of liberty, but never became the dominant symbol. It was an idea of liberty as attached to the New World. But then others began to look for an, for a, for a, an animal. And the, the first animals were taken to represent the diversity of America again. This is America as a zebra, in which, and this was a British view, in which all the states have been arranged in geographic order, except Massachusetts, which is put at the hind end. <laughs> uh, and this is America as a kettle of fish at the bottom, and clearly these would not uh, catch on. So but then finally there was the solution. Uh, that came from the Continental Congress in a very complex way that I get into. And this becomes the bird of liberty. And, and it is increasingly, as people look for a common idea of liberty and freedom, they're changing the meaning of these symbols. Now it's becoming a symbol of liberty as a national idea, not belonging to a tribe or a class or a small community or an individual, but a nation. And that national uh, emphasis was something new. This was painted on a pew in St. Paul's Chapel in New York, right almost next to the World Trade Center. The chapel was badly damaged, but the pew survived miraculously untouched right, in 9-11. And that, that, this painting is, is still there. The other was the flag. And you'll notice that the flag instantly becomes another symbol of liberty and freedom the two things together, and in all of this, you can see many, many symbols of liberty and freedom combined. This is an American seaman uh, striving for national independence. That's the goddess of liberty behind him. On the left, the wand and Pileus again. Below, the broken chains of tyranny, and also the fallen crown. So here we get the idea of liberty and freedom, not only as a national idea, but also as a republican idea, in which the national flag becomes the symbol. We get the great leaders of the early republic as symbols of liberty and freedom. This is, at the top, is George Washington's textile. It's the first political textile that was made in America in, in very early in the, in the Revolution. And the, the, the ring around the top celebrates George Washington 
as a symbol of liberty. Uh, this comes a little bit later. This is a what's called a frock tour, a Pennsylvania Dutch construction. And this uh, the inscription at the at the at the top uh, says uh, freedom, equality, and brotherly love, uh, broadening this idea. That's from 1842. This is a, a, a Washington and and uh, Franklin together uh, down here, accompanied by the goddess of liberty. And here we get an emphasis on the republican virtues of these men. Uh, other people began to use John Adams, stressing the Constitution. The USS Constitution, it's interesting to see the names that Americans picked for their, for their sailing uh, ships that celebrated some idea of liberty and freedom and connected it to the rule of law, uh, to, a, to the idea of a republic. And this ship becomes a symbol of that. And in front of Congress Hall, for about 10 years in the 1790s, there was a very large scale model of a ship that was labeled Constitution, that was meant to be a symbol of a free republic. There was another idea that Alexander Hamilton developed of liberty and freedom as associated uh, with a hive of independent <coughs> commerce. Uh, and these were symbols. This was the flag of the Society of Pewters in New York. And it celebrates liberty in its relation to commerce, to abundance, to property, to an idea of commonwealth which was linked in that uh, generation. Thomas Jefferson at the top becoming a symbol of liberty, now in linkage to another idea, which was democracy, to the sovereignty of the people. Uh, and below a Federalist um, response to that, this is a cartoon of, uh, drawn by a Federalist in New York, infant liberty nursed by mother mob, uh, an idea that liberty was Republican, but not democratic. Uh, and we get a head on a, a collision there in the politics of the early republic. And then while this is happening in the politics of the country, Americans are inventing other symbols. They come out of the vernacular art of the country, and we don't know who first invented them, but this is the aboriginal Uncle Sam. We know who he was. He was a New England Yankee named Sam Ward who lived in Troy, New York, and he sold provisions to the government and put U.S. on, his, on the barrel heads and began to be called Uncle Sam. And he didn't dress the way we dressed our Uncle Sam's. Uh, you'll see he's usually not feeling very well in these early cartoons. This is Uncle Sam's, the weak cartoon, which Uncle Sam's health is being ruined by the Jacksonians. Uh, and you'll see at the top is a, liberty, is a liberty cap. Uncle Sam is a symbol of liberty, nationhood, but also he's an ordinary American, as Sam Ward was. These early figures have a distinct resemblance to Sam Ward. Uh, and um, this becomes a symbol of liberty and freedom linked to ordinary people, uh, which gave it a new uh, meaning. Here's Uncle Sam uh, in the 19th century becoming, what's this, Thomas Nast, uh, who converts Uncle Sam pretty much into this long, lanky figure uh, in a Victorian uh, costume. This is Uncle Sam on the go. He becomes a much more dynamic figure in the late 19th century and their famous variations. This is a figure we've forgotten today, but he was very important in the 19th century. Brother Jonathan. Brother Jonathan appears in 1775. Uh, Brother Jonathan was, a, was an English, as, as we in Vietnam called the VC Charlie. So the, the British regulars in Boston called their opponents Jonathan. And Jonathan becomes a symbol of liberty. And here he is. This is on the uh, 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 after Bunker Hill. 
and you'll see liberty symbols all through there, and that's uh, uh, Jonathan actually referred to by that name at the top. Uh, um, uh, as, and then John, he changes in the 19th century. This is a French-Canadian image of, of, of Jonathan twisting the, the lion's tail. Uh, and it was the, the view from Quebec of a very dangerous and uh, disagreeable sort of fellow. Uh, this is the original Yankee Doodle above. Uh, and Yankee Doodle was also, uh, in, it was actually invented by a British surgeon in the French and Indian War, uh, and then was drawn by Americans. Uh, this is a, 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 an American painter named Wright, and he draws an image of Uncle Sam, uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of Yankee Doodle as a, um, as a self-portrait, and then he gradually uh, changes in the 19th century. But now we've got three ordinary Americans, all explicitly liberty symbols. Uh, and uh, uh, tying in, not, not, not in the sense of a doctrine of democracy, but in terms of a connection to ordinary people. And then the favorite symbol becomes a woman who changes through time in a way that has yet a, gives liberty and freedom yet other meanings. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the symbol begins with the goddess of, of liberty, the old Roman figure, who was timeless, outside of time, uh, was, um, uh, was uh, apart from humanity. And then gradually she begins to change. This is what I put on the cover of my book. Uh, it shows two ideas of liberty and freedom. And this is called Liberty Displaying the Arts and Sciences. Uh, and it shows, it's by Samuel Jennings, 1792. It's in the Library Company, Philadelphia, painted for the Library Company, Philadelphia. In the back, you see a symbol of liberty as emancipation of uh, slaves. Uh, gathering around um, uh, something like a liberty pole. I've never seen this pole at any other place except in this painting. Then on the left, we see this is a liberty now, adopted from the goddess, but not quite like the goddess. She's a young woman, uh, and she, is, she has nothing like the gravitas of a Roman goddess. She is uh, extending uh, the, the, the arts and sciences to freed slaves, inviting them to share uh, in a free culture in a free society, and so we, we have the, these two ideas together. And look how these female figures change through time. Uh, first, uh, they become particularized. And in 1795, when uh, the uh, mint master of the New Republic was looking for a model for an American coin, he wanted it to be a liberty symbol. This is the coin that's developed. It's a uh, coin collectors call this the draped bust coin. And at the top, you'll see the word, word, word liberty. And he took for his model a, a woman in Philadelphia whose name was Anne Willing Bingham. She was an extraordinary person. Uh, she was of a Quaker family, uh, Quakers educating women to an exceptionally high standard for the 18th century. Uh, she um, was, uh, was fluent in several languages, uh, had an interesting correspondence with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and you can see the power of her mind. She marries the wealthiest man in Philadelphia uh, and becomes what we, she was called the queen of the Republican court. She was also a strong feminist and often brings up Thomas Jefferson short uh, whenever he says something that she regards as what we would call sexist. Uh, and uh, she, uh, th this is a painting of her by, Gil by Gilbert Stewart, a woman of, of great beauty but known for her individual character. And now she becomes the most widely distributed symbol of liberty 
in, in, in the American Re Republic. Millions of these coins were struck in many different denominations. And then she changes. Uh, this is another version of this. This is uh, uh, called Liberty um, uh, Feeding the Eagle. It, it's, uh, it's also described as Young Liberty. And the figure, the female figure, becomes younger and younger and younger and younger as the 19th century uh, passes. Uh, it's a symbol of innocence. Uh, it's also a, a, a symbol of, of, contemporary, of, of a kind of con contemporary presence. That is, liberty is associated increasingly with youth and not with age, as it was in um, the, uh, the, 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 the Roman symbols. And then look what happens in the, in the 19th century. Miss Liberty, as she begins to be called, not the goddess, but Miss Liberty, changes with the times. She keeps up with the fashions. Uh, she adopts the Victorian uh, way of dressing. This is from a boathouse in New Hampshire on the left. She becomes a Gibson girl in the late 19th century, a flapper in the 20s, uh, and this uh, 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 very youthful figure in the, uh, the late 1930s here on the right, and continues to change. And I think something's very seriously going on here in that we see an idea of liberty and freedom changing yet again is adopting a kind of power from its continuing uh, uh, connection to the present, redefined in all of these images. And so now, in this search for a common symbol, we see in the early republic liberty becoming an American idea, a national idea, republican idea, democratic idea, uh, a vernacular idea, and an idea that is contemporary rather than derived from a distant and ancient uh, past. And in all, of that, in all of those ways, I think we see visions of these ideas that have been transformed. And then uh, the middle part of my book is about another transformation that happens uh, from about 1840 on, when quite a lot of people who were the grandchildren <coughs> of the revolutionary generation uh, come to the belief that even as a free republic had been established, many Americans are still not free. And they developed this in many different ways. Uh, one of them was uh, Thoreau, with the idea of finding a complete freedom in the wilderness. And there are many passages in his writings to that effect. Another are feminists, in particular, I think one of the most luminous minds in America, uh, Margaret Fuller, who develops the idea of what she calls absolute freedom, pure love, achieving a more complete existential idea of freedom for women, but for everybody. It's, she was, she's remembered as a feminist, but it was an idea of freedom that extended much more broadly uh, than anything we have seen uh, before. Uh, we get this man, who is uh, Joseph Brackett, uh, Shaker. This is a, 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 a sect that practiced community of goods, uh, the submergence in the group, not what we would think of as liberty or freedom, but he did. And so he wrote that song called Simple Gifts. The gift to be simple is the gift to be free. And I parsed that text at some length in my book about the Shaker idea of a gift, a very complicated theological idea. Uh, but it was in that belonging with other people who shared free grace that Brackett found liberty and freedom. And then we see the most important of all these reform movements, which was the anti-slavery movement, uh, which develops at, in, in many different visions. The earliest visions uh, center on the anti-slavery advocate rather than the, the slave. People like Benjamin Lay, who is a very uh, colorful 
uh, figure in the 18th century. Uh, then we get uh, this uh, 18th century idea of universal humanity. And this was that Wedgwood medallion that says, am I not a man and a brother? And then after that, we get symbols of the enslaved. Frederick Douglass, in my book, I have images of Frederick Douglass dolls that were made as icons uh, by uh, African-Americans and anti-slavery people in the 19th century. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting in which this is a, um, a, an anti-slavery plate which repeats the First Amendment uh, to the Constitution. And it argues, in effect, that slavery is linked to the invasion of rights of everybody, and not only the slaves. And so it's a vision of the anti-slavery as, an, as, as not only reaching out to universal rights, but reaching out to the rights of people who are not slaves, uh, but are threatened uh, by uh, the actions of, of, of slaveholders. And on the other side are these symbols. This is Texas. These are the flags of Texans in their uh, search for independence. And this goes back to don't tread on me. This is liberty as independence. It's not that idea of universal rights. It's liberty or death. Uh, it's independence repeated again and again. It's the lone star which becomes a symbol of liberty as a partness, uh, which is what they were uh, picking up. And then we get conflicted images. I won't uh, linger over this except to say on the left we get the images of the new Republican Party free speech, uh, free men, free Kansas, Fremont in 1856, and many uh, variations on that theme. On the right, we get something very rare in American history. We get um, images that were made by the Democratic Party for Buchanan in 1856, which are amongst the few uh, images by major parties that attack liberty and freedom, uh, uh, attacking uh, freedom for slaves explicitly. Uh, in this image. This also was a collision between two ideas of what should go on the top of the Capitol, the Capitol Dome, uh, during completion in the late uh, uh, 1850s, or, or it, it wouldn't be complete until during the Civil War, but this was a, a northern version of what should go on, and it was called Freedom um, Victorious with the Arts and Sciences, and this is armed liberty. This was Jefferson Davis as Secretary of War. He had the decision to make. Uh, and so armed liberty, he said he didn't want to have a liberty cap uh, uh, that belonged to slaves. He wanted to have a warrior's helmet. And it was again to be this idea of liberty. And that's what went on the Capitol. But ironically, it went on during the Civil War. And the uh, Yankees put it on facing south towards the other <laughs> uh, And so there was a double irony there. Uh, this is, uh, these are southern state flags. On the left, the first flag of the state of Florida. And if you read that on the left, it says, let us alone. Let us alone, Florida's idea of liberty. On the right, uh, we see, um, uh, this is the, the two flags in the center row, uh, center and right, are the, the flags of the state of Alabama. And at the, in the center, we see a blonde uh, uh, goddess of liberty. And over it, it says, uh, it says liberty and independence. And on the right, we see a cobra emerging from a cotton plant. And underneath it says, Nole me tangere, touch me not. In other words, don't tread on me. And so we get these things running again and again. The same figures. Here's the rattlesnake wrapped around a palmetto tree, uh, which was the symbol of South Carolina uh, secession. Then look how the Union represents liberty. This is freedom to the slave. 
and it's packed with images. It's the public school. It's emancipation. Uh, it's universal rights. It's the liberty uh, cap of emancipation at the top. And it's now former slaves in uniform. This is a drum from the Civil War era. And it's about freedom and union, the South about liberty and independence, the two clashes. And then the many symbols of emancipation changing. I think some of the most fascinating symbols are these living symbols of Lincoln as this existential image of freedom, the values perhaps most fully expressed in the second inaugural, reaching out to all humanity. Robert E. Lee, in a very deeply felt idea of, of, of liberty, uh, this was the stoic tradition of liberty as internal discipline, uh, as, the, as a man who finds independence by mastering himself uh, and, uh, in, in, a, in, a separate, in a separate way. Two different ideas of liberty. Uh, this becomes um, uh, the reconstruction symbols of the nation coming together was the hope in the North. The reality was something different in the election of 1868. This was uh, the symbol of the, of the Democratic candidate for the presidency in 1868, who was Horatio Seymour. And around the top of, of, of this, it's, this is a symbol of liberty with liberty on the bonnet. And around the top, it says, uh, this will remain a white man's country. This will remain a white man's country. On the left is a Republican textile, and it's Lincoln, Grant, Freedom, Union, all together in, in collision. And then after that, suddenly we see another great extension of these visionary ideas. And this was one that rose from Paris. Here is the Statue of Liberty being, being constructed for the first time in Paris to see if the pieces fit. Uh, and you can see them rising over the rooftops of Paris. It's a lovely painting. I apologize for the state of these uh, slides. Uh, this was a vision from a historian named Laboulaye who held a dinner party where there was a young uh, sculptor present who was Bartoli on the right. That they together did this. And then it grew to another symbol of universal freedom. And here we see it. This for this is for uh, the, the image of, of immigrants standing actually on Ellis Island. Uh, and down here was a pageant in Wisconsin uh, of Jewish um, uh, children. And this was young Golda Meir, future prime minister of Israel, uh, dressed as, uh, as the Statue of Liberty. Uh, the former slaves create their own symbols, unlike symbols we've seen before. The Star of Zion, the Rose of Sharon, dipping into the Bible, for their inspiration. Uh, this was the masthead of a black uh, newspaper uh, in the South. Uh, and, um, and, and it was woven into the text of their spirituals. Um, and it brings out the, a, 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 a biblical foundation of universal freedom. The Indians, also in 1876, uh, not only Custer, but also the Ponca Indians who were driven to Oklahoma, nearly starved, walked home to Nebraska. And then, um, thanks to a young woman named Bright Eyes up here, Suzette LaFleche, they decided not to go on the warpath, uh, but to file a suit in federal district court. And they won. Uh, and uh, there, it's amazing to read the editorials around the country, celebrating in the, in the Indians fighting for their own universal rights. So we get immigrants, we get freed slaves, and we get these Indians all extending the vision of liberty and freedom in this universal way. Then a kind of commercial version of it, 
liberty, freedom uh, uh, on the universal, but then this other begins. I'm going to go much more quickly here because I'm running short of time and we want to have a conversation. Uh, more collisions in the uh, party battles of the late 19th century. Here is William Jennings Bryan on the left, and here is uh, McKinley standing on his platform of solid gold. Uh, and uh, there are two visions there behind which I go in. Then 1912, I think the most interesting of all the American elections uh, in terms of visions of liberty and freedom, four of them, uh, the new Christian socialism of Dibbs on the top, the new conservatism of Taft, often forgotten in this, and of course the new freedom of, uh, of Woodrow Wilson, which is victorious, and of, of Teddy Roosevelt. Now I'm going to just show you very quickly what happens is now we're tested in the world, uh, and we get this sense of America doing its bit for the world, and there's something very curious about the World War I. It's this authoritarian idea of liberty. Look at these figures. You all know this one on the left. Look at the one on the right as well. You, uh, you are not invited, but uh, conscripted into this effort. These are these human tableaus. They had an entire infantry division. You wouldn't believe it, but there are 20,000 men uh, making up the Statue of Liberty there, uh, and uh, a, a large number there, the Liberty Bell as well. This image of conscripted tableaus of liberty, then it begins to grow at home. These are African-Americans marching for their civil rights uh, during World War I. And this is the Ku Klux Klan claiming that they are the true defenders of liberty, our mothers of liberty, women of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, these are suffragettes. Uh, it is Carrie Catt on the left, uh, the more moderate of the figures is Alice Paul on the right. Two contested visions of liberty and freedom, and here's the southern version, don't tread on me. And this is a prohibition, uh, two ideas of liberty and freedom there. And then a huge expansion of civil rights, driven by this remarkable lawyer standing here, his name was Arthur Garfield Hayes, one of the great figures in the history of liberty and freedom. Uh, he was a son of Jewish immigrants, so, it, so attached to their country that they named their their son after three American presidents, Arthur <coughs> Garfield days. And he created, he, he argues for civil liberties, expanding the idea and making them popular uh, causes, as in the Scopes trial, where he was the guy setting up the whole thing uh, behind Darrow and Brian on the other side. He also took on uh, the, the, uh, the, the cause of Upton Sinclair who published a novel called Oil, and the Washington Ward Society in Boston ordered that pages of it be removed before it was fit <coughs> for the press in Boston. And so Sinclair, at the urging of Hayes, did that and produced a fig leaf edition of his book. But the pages removed and replaced by a fig leaf. And what, uh, what, what they were doing was making um, infringements of these uh, the Bill of Rights, these First Amendment uh, liberties, into a laughing stock which they did uh, with great success. And then there were other people who developed an existential idea of liberty and freedom in the 1920s. Here's Hemingway. He said, I believe in one thing, liberty. He said, to hell with the state when it becomes a church, and to hell with the church when it becomes the state. And he developed the idea of liberty for himself, not only in his works, but in his life. And on the left, uh, it's Edna St. Vincent Millay, who becomes another great symbol of this. Uh, in the 1920s, and uh, this another idea of liberty is abundance. This is uh, uh, this is uh, Filene, the founder of Filene's department store in Filene's basement, 
with some critics of the department store at the, at the bottom. And then the break in with the Great Depression. In comes Franklin Roosevelt as a symbol of what he called a larger definition of liberty and freedom. And uh, this was a children's game that was made for, uh, I suppose I could say, democratic children. <laughs> the, the American way, liberty for just and justice for all, they were invited to balance the scales. This was one of those little games where you roll balls around. And they were to balance the scales of, of justice to create a free uh, system. And this was the conservative view of the New Deal, the Liberty League. Uncle Sam is Gulliver. Uh, and uh, these are all identifiable New Dealers tying him uh, uh, down. Um, these are, this was liberty and freedom adapted by fascists in America on the left. This is the German-American Bund. By communists on the right. Uh, this is uh, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the George Washington Brigade. Uh, by the populists, this is Townsend's uh, movement in California. All uh, redefining um, these ideas. Hollywood creates a hedonistic idea of liberty and freedom. This is Mae West as the Statue of Liberty <laughs> on the left. And here are, here's Walt Disney telling America that it's fun to be free. It's fun to be free. Uh, and then comes uh, World War II and Pearl Harbor. It's suddenly a break. Now we get the idea that this word, this quotation reverberating through American history, but now brought to a kind of edge remember Pearl Harbor, but also the idea that liberty and freedom require eternal vigilance. And we get various symbols of these things, some <coughs> not very elegant. A woman's uh, panties marked, uh, don't get caught with your pants now, was a popular way of expressing the loftier thought that liberty means eternal uh, vigilance. Notice how the figures change in World War II. They're not the authority figures of World War I. Uncle Sam has rolled up his sleeves and is a very folksy sort of fellow. Miss Liberty's the girl next door. Uh, and they are, uh, uh, we also get this V symbol, the V symbol invented by a Belgian resistance leader. Uh, it stood for Vitoire in French, and also Vrigheid, the Flemish word for freedom, Vrigheid. And then it is instantly taken over by African Americans in what they call the double V. And V for victory uh, reverberates uh, through the country. Uh, the idea of, of rights for women uh, begins to grow uh, with these emblems of Rosie the River. There are two different Rosies, and the aboriginal Rosie up there on the right, a remarkable woman. All of this tied together with the same themes that we saw in 9-11. Uh, united we stand, together we win, now all together. The idea of freedom as belonging uh, to this uh, this collecting group. And then we get what I think becomes the most powerful and popular image of liberty and freedom, which are the four freedoms, a passage in Franklin Roosevelt's Lend-Lease message to Congress. Norman Rockwell struggling to find a theme and an image and coming to representations of life in his own town of Arlington, Vermont. And here he, it, 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 he was defeated by the idea of liberty as freedom of worship. I mean, freedom of worship, and so he had to abandon his, his Vermont theme. But all of this catching on, there were dissenters. Uh, a conservative congresswoman, Edith North Rogers, said that he neglected the fifth liberty, uh, which was property rights, and there was some, some criticism uh, of, that, of that sort. Uh, but most Americans uh, responded very, uh, very positively. These, they, they, they traveled around the country. 
that after the war, DJ did. And another symbol of liberty and freedom that begins to spread. This was the, this was the most popular image of of VJ Day that spreads all over the country. And it's coupled with something else that happened in 1944. This is Franklin Roosevelt signing the GI Bill of Rights, surrounded by liberal and conservative congressmen, passing unanimously. Uh, and this was a sense of personal liberty, but also of entitlement uh, that, that these uh, men who, and women who fought in the war, wore uniforms, were entitled uh, to a job, to training, not, not as a dole. They were entitled to the means of bettering themselves. And it was an idea in that special moment in American history when everybody agreed on that and then later became a part. And then in 1947, the Freedom Train, done as a crash program uh, sponsored by a group of Texas Democrats, conservative Texas Democrats, all the great charters of liberty and freedom put on a train and sent on the longest train trip in American history all over the place. Children at the top looking into these glass cases, pondering this. And then Americans, we'd be very cynical about that today, some of us anyway, that is, uh, people invited to take an oath to support a free society and also to respect a society in which people had the right to disagree. And millions of Americans signed that oath on the eve of the Cold War. And then another great struggle, and it becomes this image of a world crusade, now not against fascism on the right, but of communism on the left. At the first, in every war, we get constraints on liberty and freedom. And we get an attacks on the constraints. And this was the classic image. This was Herblock's cartoon, which created the word McCarthyism. Uh, and then we get people expanding both civil liberties and civil rights. Uh, and this is a, 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 an argument that to make our case in the Cold War, we have to put things right at home. And I think that becomes a major factor in Brown versus Board of Education. Freedom Day, it becomes. And the school becomes a symbol of freedom as belonging. And this is Rosa Parks as an icon of that belonging. And also of this idea of universality of these civil rights. And then at the bottom is the Ku Klux Klan claiming liberty once again uh, in this uh, painting that's in the, in the Virginia uh, Historical Society. We see both the Ku Klux Klan and the Virginia State Police are there together in that image. Uh, we get Betty Friedan and Ms. Liberty. Uh, and uh, we get then two opposite movements in, eight, in the mid-60s. We get the new uh, right and we get the new left. Uh, expanding, this is the free speech movement in Berkeley, and two Goldwater uh, badges. A youth movement, both of them were youth movements, uh, which I tried to bring out. We get Beats and Hippies, expanding those existential ideas. This is Jack Kerouac developing his idea of, of freedom. Uh, this is a much more despairing view here of Janis Joplin. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, says uh, This is Jimi Hendrix who writes that song called Stone Free. And we get pathological images of liberty and freedom, but others that are moving in a different direction. We get a freedom as a flower and a flag uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, we get the civil rights movement di dividing freedom on the left 
a young man from the Congress of Racial Equality on the right, you'll notice what's over his brow. It's an equality mark, a symbol of equality. And we get others who feel deeply divided, this image of an African-American. And above, the, the writing above is the, is, the, is the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag uh, the, with liberty and justice for all. A middle-class black in his dress, half, uh, half African-American, half American. This is Stokely uh, Carmichael at the bottom with freedom as a raised arm, clenched fist. This was, uh, this was an image of, of, of freedom as abundance, uh, which was developed uh, in a, that famous kitchen debate uh, in Moscow. And then Americans getting more and more confused in the 1970s, <laughs> baffled by all this. Others attacking liberty, even the Statue of Liberty, fascist emblems on, on liberty. And then a great revival with Ronald Reagan. Uh, and we see it not only in the Reagan symbols themselves, uh, but we also see, um, this, is a, this is a quilt made in Alabama by an African-American woman, and it's called Being in Total Control of Myself. And it coincides with the Reagan uh, movement, other symbols, popular symbols at the same time. We get the freedom and liberty as, as pluralism and a rainbow coalition. We get it as the special movements of on the one side, the Second Amendment and, and rights for those who want to keep and bear arms. On the other side, Americans who want to be gun free. Uh, we get people on both sides of the debate uh, uh, about, uh, about abortion. Um, we get new feminisms. This was one of my favorite quilts, this, uh, the, uh, the, an individuated idea, the freedom to dream, uh, to be me. This is, uh, this is Geraldine Ferrero storming the barricades. Uh, and this is the, the backlash, a man who's, who's uh, demanding husband liberation in the, streets of, um, in the streets of, we want wives, we want wives who obey, uh, he says. So uh, then we get these uh, emblems on every side of every issue as the country gets like. Then we get uh, a kind of polarization. We get Mr. Clinton embracing everybody. Uh, we get this idea of wrapping his arms around freedom for, for, for all. We get Mr. Bush with these, the Lone Star symbols, uh, the symbols of liberty and independence, two passionate versions of American ideas. And then we get 9-11. And once again, we come together, but there are tensions within. Here's a, here's a self-portrait of an Islamic American woman uh, dressed uh, in, in ways that bring out the two sides of her dilemma. And then my book ends with reflections on what's happening around the world. And it seems to me the same story I've been telling for America is a story for the world as well. And I look at various symbols as they're multiplying at our own time. <coughs> Americans thought this was a Chinese version of the Statue of Liberty. It's not at all. It was a group of Chinese art students who were invited to do that and they rejected it. They said we should create a symbol that is Chinese, that speaks to our democratic ideas, and to universal ideas, and so they invented something new there. This is Ambedkar, a great symbol in India. He was an untouchable, and he created an idea of liberty and freedom for India, which was an idea that combined Indian um, ethics of, uh, of the uh, mastery of self. This was an idea this, in, in Poland, 1989. It's Gary Cooper inviting people to vote. At high noon, it was, on that day. Uh, in June, and um, 4th of July, it, uh, was it July? I forget. 
I was actually there, and it was that was why I was there, uh, talking to talking to those people that we were talking about yeah. at, at lunch. But uh, this they were behind this was an idea of civic um, belonging and of individual rights that I think is uniquely Polish. It's a long story, but we see multiple ideas. We see liberty changing as it as it spreads, freedom taking on new forms. Uh, with, with each turn, and it seems to me that the conclusion of all this is that every generation in America, and increasingly in the world, is not only interested but obsessed with liberty and freedom. Every generation has, has treated, has come to these as contested ideas. And in those contests, the ideas have always grown, always grown. And in that growth, I think we see something to look forward to. And that's my Story. Thank you so much. Uh, <clears throat> we'll begin questioning uh, with students first, please. Students who groom their hair. <laughs> Anybody? Yes, in the back. Christian developing idea of liberty, you talked about the passages of the Bible, liberty being sort of uh, the area idea. But it seems like it also has a certain belonging sense to it, too. So can you maybe explain how those ideas of liberty and freedom... Well, it, uh, as to Christian, you said? Yeah. The, yes. I, um, at the beginning, I, uh, I created a, a little table. Uh, between the, that, that liberty, Eleutheria idea on the one side and freedom on the other. And then I've got another line in it for uh, Christian applications of those ideas. And I see them both uh, developing uh, in, uh, on the one side as liberty of conscience, which I think would be comparable to Eleutheria, but on the other side as what um, Martin Luther and uh, the Puritans called soul freedom, uh, which Luther described as the freedom to become one with Christ. And so it becomes that idea of belonging, uh, it, 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 of, of Christian belonging. And I think there was always that dualism there that came out of those two, that came out of those two traditions. I love that response. You want to go further on that? Uh, I mean, I'm just kind of wondering how they came out in the American Revolution, especially in the North and South. How did they come out in the American Revolution? Yeah. Well, first, I, I would want to separate the American Revolution from Northern and Southern in the sense that North and South are anachronisms in the time of the American Revolution. There were lots of, there were lots of smaller uh, uh, cultures, which I think were very diverse. And in many of those cultures, we find some sort of religious connection in these ideas. That is, I think that the New England, the Quaker ideas, for sure, deeply rooted in the, in the faith of those that were planted in those regional cultures. And then I think there really was a polarization as these regions become sections, but not until the 19th century. And then we get this southern, and, they, and the southern and northern ideas I think are shaped by that request of slavery, with religious imperatives linked on both sides. We're just getting a lot of work on, particularly on the southern side of the southern theologians who, uh, Thornwell and others who uh, began to uh, link their idea of liberty to biblical, to scriptural imperatives in that way. Did you, did you find any symbols of uh, 
liberty and freedom in the Islamic world? I haven't looked in the Islamic world, I, it, it, but I have found what looked to me to be a few. There's a new uh, statue that has risen in that square in Baghdad where Saddam Hussein previously was. Uh, and it's a symbol of an Islamic family surmounted by the crescent symbol. It's another one of these syncretistic sorts of structures, which, is, which has a sense of, of collective belonging in the, in the family idea, and which also engages Islam in the crescent and so forth but is also clearly engaging an idea of rights. And so here I think in the Islamic world we um, are finding yet another, we're finding yet new symbols which seem to me to describe new visions. My wife has been, is a botanist, she's been, um, amongst other things, consulting on the founding of new high schools, uh, science high schools for girls in Qatar, which is a revolution in about three dimensions. And she's finding the same things there of, a, of an Islamic idea of liberty and freedom that can draw in their imperatives within some conception of rights, in this case for young women, to study science in English, another revolution, all going on at the same, same time. I think we get the bad news in our newspapers today. But my wife tells me the good news, and I think that's very, I think that's very hopeful, very hopeful. Uh, early in your presentation, you were talking about African American symbols, like the uh, the death and liberty flag, and yes. the, the Bucks of America. Yes. And I remember you saying that they were more distinctly American than some of the other. Yes. Why is that? Or why well, I I scratched my head over that, and I think maybe one answer would be that they. But they didn't seem to be drawing unique African elements into all of that. They were inventing their own. It wasn't that they were copying European elements. They didn't want to go that way. And I think maybe that would explain why we get more of these American. So they were more distinctly American in that they didn't borrow from any other, exactly. other allocations. Exactly. That's, that, that would be the short of what I think I'd find it. Yes, normally when I think about liberty and freedom, on one side of a coin, you tip it over talk about responsibility. Exactly. They're put together. Yes. Together. Much of my book is about that. And all the way through, I think, most but not all of these ideas of liberty and freedom entail some sense of, of, of civic responsibility. And that table I've got at the front, I think there is a sense, let's say, even in the Libertas in the Roman Empire, there was a, a responsibility. You see the language not to behave as a libertine, which uh, the libertine was a word that the Romans used for somebody who abused his liberty. Uh, and then on the other side, of the people who had freedom as belonging, it was an idea of responsibility, of not only for oneself, but for the group as well. And so even that sense of responsibility becomes contested in the way that it works out. And I think there are other ideas of liberty and freedom in which there isn't the reverse side. Though I think there ought to be, but that uh, these are the more hedonistic ideas of liberty and freedom, or the idea of liberty and freedom as simply emancipation, nothing else. And there we get the idea of responsibility, which I think was very deep in the early American symbols, dropping away. And I think that's a, that's that's a that's a job of recovery that maybe we have some work to do on in our own time. Let me, let me follow it a little bit further. Can you a little louder? I'm let me just follow it a little bit further and comment on this. Actually, 
if you read the Ten Commandments, there is a list of responsibilities. Yes. As are the oath of the freeman in Massachusetts, which is not uh, a statement of emancipation or of license, but of obligation. And so I think that many of these early statements in America are explicitly cast in terms of not only rights, but duties that free people are expected to perform. Sure. I think we remember the rights better than the duties. As you laid out, I mean, you seem to have an understanding of sort of a vibrant tradition of uh, realizing liberty as uh, belonging. But when we export that to, say, Iraq, we're, we're giving this to a country that was not brought together in a sense of belonging, you know, out of, a, out of the Ottoman Empire and so on, as well as, you know, having three distinct cultures with it. Do we have a problem then, sort of a disconnect between offering up liberty as our gift to all people, but in understanding it as belonging? when in fact the people that we're giving it to have no sense of belonging in the international yeah. uh, I, would, I would say, let's, let's look for a moment not at Iraq, but at, at, at Afghanistan. And there, I think with the testimony that comes back, I should be quick to say I've never been to Afghanistan. So what I know what I read in the newspapers, but what I'm reading in the newspapers is testimony again and again that the people of Afghanistan wanted desperately to vote, often at great personal cost. And they wanted desperately to be free, with voting as one expression of that freedom. And so I don't think it's the case that people in Afghanistan had no idea of liberty and freedom. Uh, and I think they, that we can see them drawing upon their own aspirations, and I think also strengths and values that are different from our own, but something very positive there. Then I have a, a sense that just, despite all the chaos that we read about in Iraq, that most Iraqi people also have aspirations like that. And that that's what we're trying to build upon. I think that what, the, what we're trying to do is to, is to remove the constraints on those aspirations in the hope that they will flower. And that's a hope that I would hold, uh, even as we see all the difficulties that are developing now. Do you want to go on with that? Go? Yeah, just, just a little bit further. Um, I suppose I would say then, in response to that, that I would think the idea would then be to separate Iraq into three separate countries, rather than try and have the three sides talk to each other. Because I mean, there's, there seemed to be yeah. uh, too much ethnic tension going on, yeah. uh, and as well as the fact that the Kurds seem to essentially almost set up their own state uh, in, in the north. Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I that, that's a solution that many people have been proposing. But I think one problem with that solution is that a lot of Iraqis don't want to go that way. That is to say that there is a very strong sense of, of, a, of identity with this idea that we call Iraq. And I think it is even strong amongst the Kurds in the north. As long as that's the case, uh, in any case, I don't think this is for us to say. I mean, they'll have to work it out. But I, I think it's, I, I would be, I, if I were a betting man, I'd bet on Iraq, uh, given, the, uh, given the, um, the strength of these, of these national aspirations there. Yes. Did Robert E. Lee write much about freedom? Yes, he did. Uh, not treatises or anything like that, but letters. And he did it in several ways. Uh, there, there are letters that have been, uh, that, in which there are some uh, brief, comparatively brief 
passages in which you can see uh, this, the development of this stoic idea. And some of his most recent biographers arguing that the paradox of Lee was that it was in his, the performance of his duty that he felt most free, that is when he disciplined himself to duty, back to your idea of obligation. And then he also wrote about it in his last job, which was as president of what he called Washington College, what we know as Washington and Lee. And uh, these were rules for the students. And we can see it there uh, developed in more detail than I think any other part of his, uh, of, of his career. There's a wonderful book by Marshall Fishwick called Lee After the War, uh, which gets into those materials and reproduces uh, some of them. We'll take just one more question, Professor. <clears throat> Although it's not directly within the purview of your book, could you talk a little bit about the themes of liberty and freedom in American monumental architecture? I haven't really, uh, except if you think of the Statue of Liberty that way. Uh, and uh, many of these expressions were, in fact, architectural. There are more of them in my, in my book. There were various obelisks and structures of that kind. And there was a movement that was, I think, stimulated by the French Revolution, the, a French architect, Boulet, who argued uh, in the early 1790s that every, uh, every piece of architecture should be the expression of an idea. And so we can begin to see that developing in, the, in some of, the, some of the, uh, the, the, the architectural structures. And I think we can see a different, for example, you can compare the Virginia State House on, in the hill in Richmond with the Massachusetts State House, one designed by Jefferson and the other, uh, the other by Charles Bullfinch. And uh, one of them is a, is a much more domesticated structure. That's the, that's the Massachusetts one. It comes out of the entire fabric of New England architecture. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the state house in Richmond is modeled on the Maison Carré in Nîmes, uh, and it's uh, copied line for line on that uh, Roman um, version of a Greek temple, and we, we can see two versions there of an idea of a free republic in architectural form. Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.